Thank you, Danny and worship team, for pastoring us in worship. I have a feeling that in the light of Jesus' great glory, this thought will fade away. But currently, I have a bit of a bone to pick with Pastor Mitchell. As we would prepare a series together sometimes, he would often tease that he would leave the hard passages to me. Maybe you remember when we went through the book of Mark together, and we talked about what's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's Mark chapter 13. It's filled with difficult teaching. It's the one that talks about the abomination of desolation that stands in the place where it ought not to be. Let the reader understand. And I don't know about you, but I read it and I don't understand. And he would tell me that he was going to go on vacation when we got to Mark chapter 13. We actually wrapped up that series before we got to that point. Um, But here we are in the Upper Room Discourse, And the next passage is Judas Iscariot, who would betray Jesus. The thing is, though, I know that Mitchell was eager to preach this passage. I know it because it's an opportunity to exalt our Lord Jesus Christ, who loves us to the uttermost. And I know it for another reason, something that was very heavy on his heart all the time, and we will talk about that a little bit later. So we're in John chapter 13 in the upper room. Jesus has just washed his disciples' feet and told them that he had set a beautiful example for them that they should do as he has done. And he continues in verse 18, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me, accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Jesus took the bread, Satan entered him. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus, was, why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas was in charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival. 
or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. It would help us as we approach this passage to understand, I guess, the mindset, the situation of the various individuals who are around that table on this evening. First of all, let's talk about 11 disciples. We're leaving Judas for now and speaking of the other 11 and what was leading up to this moment and some of the things that uh, were going through their mind and some of the things that they understood. We've already mentioned in this series that they were in the upper room for a festival. This was a celebration. God had done a wonderful thing for the people of Israel. He had led them out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt, and by mighty acts of power had set them free. And this, of course, represented the fact that by mighty acts of power, God was with His people all of the way and that He was continuing to redeem them and that there was a great redemption in the future. So they were in a time of celebration. This was not the first celebration that they had had with Jesus. Every year there was a cycle of festivals. Every year for three years the disciples were with Jesus as they celebrated these festivals together. Now often those festivals were accompanied by difficult conversations and confrontations with the Jewish leaders, but the fact is that they had gathered to celebrate together. Now, as they were going up to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, some things happened that were uneasy for them. Jesus had predicted several times that they were going into Jerusalem and that He would be turned over uh, to the Jewish leaders, that He would suffer many things, that He would be crucified and rise from the dead. There's a problem, though, and that is that as clearly as Jesus said it, the disciples didn't really get what was going on. I mean, think about how surprised they were at the crucifixion, and then the fact that three days later they were shocked that He had risen from the dead. They knew Jesus was talking about something that was terrible, but they did not have a clear concept in their mind of what was going to take place when they were in Jerusalem. In fact, they had gone up to Jerusalem to great celebration. They were welcomed joyfully by all the people. And Jesus was announced to be the coming king. There was great anticipation that the kingdom of God was at hand and that all of the wonderful things that they had been promised through the centuries were about to be accomplished. So you have in this upper room 11 disciples who have a sense of anticipation and dis-ease at difficult things that were taking place, at the controversies, at the plotting of the Jewish leaders, but also who were in a celebratory mood and who anticipated good things to be happening as well. And then there is their perspective on Judas, who was one of them. Think about it. For three years, Judas had been with them. And in the course of that time, they had no indication 
that there was anything wrong with Judas. We have the benefit of hindsight. I think every time that we see the name of Judas in the New Testament, we think of him as the betrayer. But for three years, he was simply one of them. John, in his gospel, as he recounts the life of Christ and of those three years of ministry, with the benefit of hindsight, goes back and constantly reminds us, Judas, who would betray him. Jesus knew about this. Judas, who helped himself to the money of bag. But in the upper room, at that moment, they simply knew him as one who had prayed with them, as one who had walked with them, as one who had suffered with them, as one of those who was sent out two by two and saw mighty things accomplished and came back together with them rejoicing. He was part of that band, and in fact, he was a trusted member of the group of disciples. He was the one who kept the money bag. That is not an insignificant thing. As they went along, if someone made a donation, it was passed to Judas, entrusted to him. He had charge of the finances. If money needed to be spent, they went to him. Judas, I got to buy bread. Can I have some money? Sure, here, go get it. He was not merely one of those nameless disciples who we don't know much about. He was a trusted close companion of the twelve disciples and of Jesus Christ himself. They had no idea. Every once in a while, Jesus would say, one of you will betray me. One of you is not like the rest of us. He never indicated who, and they had no reason to expect that it was Judas as they reclined at that table of celebration that day. Then we have Judas himself, one of the chosen, one of the twelve. Mark tells us that Jesus chose twelve disciples that they might be with him, and there is such import to that phrase. It wasn't just hanging around. It was being with him day in and day out, sitting at his feet, hearing his teachings, learning from him, and imitating him. Judas was chosen to be with him. Judas was with them in the boat. Remember the storm? And Jesus stands up and calms the storm. And they, the disciples, worshipped him because they saw him for who he was. Judas went through that experience with them. Judas saw Jesus drive out demons demonstrating the power of God in the spiritual world, not only the physical world. Judas saw Jesus divide the bread so that 5,000 families were fed. And then Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He participated in all of these things. But we do know that he had been tempted there was a growing avarice, greed, in the life of Judas. He had given up much. 
We don't know the exact process that went in his heart, but we know that from time to time he helped himself with what was in the money bag. Now, it wasn't enough to get anybody's attention, or you can be sure he wouldn't be carrying the money bag anymore. But it was enough to meet some of that need that he had where Jesus was displaced by a desire for money. And that growing avarice led to the point that when he recognized that the Jewish leaders were looking for an opportunity to arrest Jesus, Satan could prompt him to say, go to them. You can get some money. All you have to do is tell them where he'll be alone. And Judas made that agreement. And so in this upper room, with the disciples in festival with Jesus, really having very little idea of what was right then about to happen, that evening Jesus would be arrested, that weekend he would be crucified, with the disciples having no clue, Judas reached the decisive moment in his life. The sin had been growing. The plot had been agreed upon. Would he follow through with it? It's also helpful at this moment to understand something of what that table would have been like at this festival celebration. Leonardo da Vinci's painting is beautiful, and many have found great meaning in it, but it's wrong. There's not a long table, and there's not 12 people sitting on chairs behind the table as they have a feast laid out before him. For a festival, low tables would be laid out. I've had the opportunity to sit at that low table, and actually the first time I did, I tried to get my feet under it and sit upright to be able to eat the way that I was accustomed to eating, but that's not what you do. There was likely a, a U shape of several very low tables and then cushions around those tables, possibly three to a cushion, not necessarily, and they would lean, their feet stretched out behind them, lean towards the table on their left arm while they ate with their right arm. And so you have Jesus likely in the center of this U, leaning on his arm and eating, talking with the disciples. Everybody could talk with each other, everybody could fellowship with each other. Then you likely have John the disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved, reclining right next to him. And so later on when we hear about John leaning against Jesus' chest and whispering a question to him, you can kind of understand how easy that was to do. He just leans back and says, who are you talking about? We also know that Jesus at this moment was able to dip a piece of bread in the in what's likely the mixture of several fruits with a little bit of sour wine, and hand it to Judas. Judas is not at the other end of the table somewhere. Judas is very likely right next to Jesus or very close to Jesus in a place of honor as all of this takes place. And so the third character, the third person that we'd like to mention this morning is Jesus himself, reclining at that table with his 12 disciples. 
In that position, we can understand what it was like for Jesus to have got up and work his way around that table while the disciples are talking with each other, washing each pair of feet that was stretched out behind the table. And we know that Jesus knew exactly what was happening. Jesus knew who would betray him. Jesus knew that that awful betrayal was going to happen that very night. Have you felt betrayed before? Has someone that you trusted stabbed you in the back? That's what Jesus was feeling at this moment behind that table. But he washes that disciple's feet along with the others as an act of love and of service. And he even honors Judas in that moment, having him nearby, and most commentators agree, making a final appeal in a gesture of love. We also know for certain that in the ultimate gesture of love, Jesus would go from that table to the cross, and that on that cross he bore upon himself every single human sin, including that of Judas. He suffered for my sake. He suffered for your sake. And he suffered for the sake of the Judases in this world. In this context, Jesus reveals to the disciples the betrayal that is about to take place. It's spoken in very simple words. When Jesus is troubled in spirit and says, very truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. We've already mentioned previously the idea of Jesus being troubled. We know that we do not have to dwell in trouble, but that trouble comes our way and that our minds can get caught up in that trouble. And Jesus had that experience as well. Jesus was troubled at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. He was distressed in his spirit. Jesus was troubled as he was speaking with the people and, and dwelling on the terrible things that were about to happen to him. He was distressed in his spirit at what would take place in his arrest and trials and sufferings and crucifixion and death. And here, Jesus is troubled. This is not simply a, an act of fate that he's known is going to happen and so he's ready for it and it doesn't really bother him at all. He knows what Judas is about to do and his soul is burdened by this knowledge. And he says to them very solemnly, it's really interesting how John underscores this statement here. It actually literally reads, Jesus testified and said, very truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. This was not something light and easy. It was something that was a burden. It was a solemn moment as he revealed that one of them literally would hand him over. Here you have people who wanted to get rid of Jesus. And it was one of that number 
of those trusted 12 who would be the one to hand him over to them. This had a profound effect on the disciples, as you can imagine. In their state of festival, in which Jesus had just honored them by watching, washing their feet, in which Jesus had said that they should serve each other in the same way that he had served them, suddenly Jesus drops a bomb of shock and confusion among them. This is the last thing that they anticipated coming from his mouth at this moment. They looked around in confusion, and something of an uproar came up around this table. The other Gospels tell us that they were all asking him and asking each other, is it you? Who, who, what is he talking about? Is it I, Lord? And as this hubbub of conversation is going on in the midst of the shock and confusion, Peter, who's some distance away, we don't exactly know how far, but not right next to John because he has to kind of indicate and say, hey, ask him who he's talking about. And John leans back and says, who is it, Lord? And Jesus says, it's the one I'm going to give this piece of bread to. This is a whispered conversation amid the hubbub. The only thing that the rest of the disciples hear is what you're about to do, do quickly. They don't know, even at this point, exactly what's going on. They know that Jesus has said somebody's going to betray him. But when Jesus says to Judas, what you're about to do, do quickly, and Judas goes off, the disciples are thinking, do we not have enough food here? Well, I guess there's a couple more days of the festival. Maybe he's going off to buy some more food for us. Judas still has the money bag. Or it's the Passover. It's traditional to give alms at this time. Maybe Jesus is going off to, to give those alms to someone who is needy. Or maybe Judas is going off to do that. John doesn't, John himself doesn't really understand what's going on. Wow, Judas is going to betray Jesus? When is that going to happen? How is he going to do that? Huh, I wonder where he's going. A number of commentators at this point wonder, why didn't John prevent Judas from doing what he was about to do? And there's all kinds of speculation except the very obvious one that John still didn't perceive exactly what was taking place in that moment. He was shocked along with the rest of the disciples. He did not understand along with the rest of the disciples. He wondered what was going on along with the rest of the disciples. And together, they're simply dumbstruck. How can this be happening? And in the middle of that shocked, well, not in the middle, in preparation for that shocked and confused state, Jesus has four things that he has told his disciples. Jesus wants his disciples to know and to be completely certain of four things as they enter this most difficult period in their life. In their dismay, in their confusion, 
the first thing he wants them to know is that he knows. This didn't catch him by surprise. Jesus said to them just prior to revealing this, in preparation for what he was about to say, Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know the ones whom I have chosen. He knows you. He knows me. He knows what's going on in our lives. He cares deeply for us and is preparing us for every tragedy, for every moment of dismay, for all of the shock and confusion that will come our way in our life, Jesus knows. And that knowledge is assuring. Jesus does not have to figure out another plan. He doesn't see what Judas is about to do and say, oh no, how am I going to establish the kingdom? He doesn't have to take a detour. He doesn't wonder what's happening next. He is neither disoriented nor deterred in the things that he's going to accomplish. To accomplish. He knows. And so it's okay. Not only does Jesus know what's happening, but he also assures the disciples that the Scripture has prepared them for what is coming. The thing that is about to take place is no surprise to Jesus and actually isn't surprising to a student of Scripture who understands that the Psalms are anticipatory of the ministry of Jesus Christ. What is happening is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. You don't have to look far to understand some of the things that are going to take place in our lives. Jesus knew what was right there, and he told the disciples it was right there in the Scriptures. And the Scriptures promise us as well, in addition to all the wonderful things that we have ahead, in addition to all the ways that Jesus blesses us with abundance of life that we share together, Jesus in the Scriptures, promises us there will be trouble, there will be loss, there will be disappointment, there will be confusion. Don't be surprised when it happens. Prepare yourselves because it is written and know that I know and it's going to be okay. The third thing that Jesus wants to let his disciples know in this difficult moment in their lives is that their faith can even be strengthened through what happens. Rather than being shocked, disoriented, and blown off the path, in that very moment they can actually be strengthened in their faith as they recognize who Jesus is. He says to them, I am telling you now 
before it happens. He's very specific here. I am telling you about the betrayal before the betrayal happens so that when it does happen, you will know that I am He. This is one of those special phrases that we find in the book of John that has such meaning and such power. Because what Jesus actually says at this point is, I am telling you now so that when it happens, you will know that I am. That's the literal words. In that awful moment, in that so very desperately human moment when I am turned over and arrested, you will know I am. Referring, of course, to the name of God given to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. As Moses looks on that burning bush and is commissioned by the Lord to go back to the people of Israel and lead them out of slavery. And Moses is terrified at this prospect and says, who should I tell them is sending me? What do I say when they ask, what is your name? And God says, I am that I am. This is what you shall tell them. I am has sent me. Please remember that phrase. I am has sent me. That name that belongs to God alone, that name that identifies in his unique him identifies him in his uniqueness and in his glory, in his majesty and his holiness, the name that belongs to God alone, Jesus claims for himself in the book of John. The most powerful place where we see that is in John chapter 8, where he has been in dispute with the Jewish leaders. And he tells them that Abraham rejoiced at seeing his day. Well, actually, first of all, he says, he talks about, uh, about God as his father. Jewish leaders actually make a very stinging insult at this point. We don't know who your father is, referring to rumors that circulated about the virgin birth of Christ and various theories about his fatherhood. We don't know who your father is, but our father is Abraham. And then Jesus says, Abraham looked forward to my day, and he saw it and was glad. At this point, they think he's mad. You're not even 50 years old, but Abraham has seen your day. And Jesus replies, before Abraham was, I am. Unless there be any confusion about what Jesus meant, they pick up stones to put him to death for blasphemy because they knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. At this point, Jesus says, the same thing. His claims are reinforced powerfully in the moment of his betrayal. When it happens, and you know that I prepared you for this moment, remember, I am. Haven't we seen how he's prepared us for the difficult moments? I've talked with so many people these last couple weeks about the little things and the big things 
that God has done to prepare us for the difficult moments in our lives. And they tell us about the I am who was so very concerned for the details of our lives that he's constantly at work. And so we can believe. We can believe. And then the fourth thing that he tells them in preparation for this moment of betrayal is that they go out with his authority. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. This verse is confusing at first. When I did my initial study, I thought, why is verse 20 in the middle of this narrative about betrayal? But if you read the entire narrative, Jesus constantly goes back and forth between the idea of betrayal, between who he is, and between what the disciples are supposed to do next. This is one of the developing commission that Jesus is giving to the disciples. Here I am about to be betrayed. I will be rejected. You're going to be rejected too. But when you're rejected, don't forget. If they reject you, they're rejecting me. And if they reject me, they reject the Father who sent me. If they accept you, they're accepting me. If they accept me, they're accepting the Father who sent me. You are going in my name. I am is sending you. And so no matter what happens, acceptance, rejection, betrayal, or glorious fruit, it is all because of the authority of Jesus Christ at work in those whom he sends. How great is the love of our Savior. Here he is himself so deeply troubled at the things that are about to take place. But what he's thinking about is his disciples. When they enter this time of confusion, when they enter this time where they are disoriented, they don't understand what's going on, their hopes have been crushed, you can just keep going on and on about how devastating the experience of the crucifixion of Christ will be for those 12 disciples. At that moment, he assures them of who he is and of what that means for them. Jesus has something that he wants Judas to know as well in this passage. And that is that he is still gracious towards him. We don't read it directly, but we can see it in the things that Jesus does and some of the things that he says. In this moment on the eve, not even the eve, in the hours before his betrayal, we know that Jesus has already served Judas by lovingly washing his feet. We know that Jesus has already honored Judas by having him at his side or nearby and by giving him this piece of bread. Jesus had quoted Psalm 41, the one who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That psalm is the psalm of a, a suffering righteous man 
who has been betrayed by a dear friend. We have to understand the significance in Near Eastern culture of hospitality and sharing a meal together. When you invite someone to your table, you are actually extending your protection to them. You are honoring them, and they are entering an unspoken covenant of honor with you. You share a meal with a friend. You share a meal with someone that you trust, with someone who is now in a meaningful relationship with you. Out of those 12 disciples, Jesus extends that piece of bread to one of them, and that is to Judas. Commentators have spoken of this as the last token of Jesus' love before the betrayal. The sharing of the bread is a personal moment and a decisive moment in the career of Judas. It is, another has said, a final act of astounding love and appeal. At that moment, it's not too late for Judas. The plot has led up to a decisive moment. And in response to that act of love and appeal, we see Judas make a final surrender to the power of darkness. What terrible things take place in the following verses. As that piece of bread is offered to him, Judas has an opportunity for repentance. I am not worthy. Let me tell you what's going on in my life right now. He brazenly takes it. The die is set. The decisive moment has passed. And Satan enters into him. What a terrible thing. Satan is real. He is personal. And he desires to enter in and take control. It's really interesting. John uses the phrase, enter in, all the time. All the New Testament writers use it. It's just a very common thing to go in, to go into a house, to go into a city. Often the gospel writers talk about going into the kingdom of God, which is a little bit metaphoric, but it's still talking about a place that you can go into. There are only two places in all of John's writings, Gospel of John, his letters to the churches, the Revelation of John, there are only two places where a person enters into another person. One of them is very familiar to you, Revelation 3.20, Jesus talking to the lukewarm church at Laodicea and says, I am at the door of your heart, lukewarm believer. Let me in and I will come in and I will fellowship with you. What a beautiful picture. And how much that sets into dark contrast what takes in place in this moment where Satan, who had prompted, enters in and takes control. Lots of questions come up at this point. They're good questions. Can a believer be possessed by Satan? I'd love to go with it in depth. We're looking at having 
In fact, this is off the top of my head, we're looking at having difficult questions during the discipleship hour over the summer. Maybe somebody wants to ask that question. But the short answer is no. When you read through the New Testament and find people who are possessed by a demon or by the devil, they are not believers. But the New Testament is filled with all kinds of warnings about giving Satan a foothold in our lives, about letting down the armor so that a chink is exposed and he can attack us with his fiery darts of temptation or doubt. He is a roaring lion, Peter says to the believers, watch out. But we have the Holy Spirit. That's who indwells our lives. And by the power of the Spirit, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. But that's not what happens here. Judas has rejected Jesus and has been filled up with Satan and goes out to accomplish one of the darkest deeds in human history. The final phrase in this passage is terrifying. It really reads very simply, Judas went out and it was night. But for John, night is not merely a time of day. For John, night is a place where there is no spiritual light. Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 9, a time is coming when I will not be working among you. The night is coming. In chapter 11, he says, night is when people stumble because they have no light in them. The end of the book of Revelation, night is gone because Jesus in all of his glory is there all the time. But Judas doesn't get the glory. Judas goes out into the night, the place where Jesus is no more. He goes into what's described as outer darkness. He goes into a place of eternal condemnation. And this is where we get to why I know that Mitchell's heart's desire was to preach this passage. Because he and I have had so many conversations and have prayed together for those who may be among us. Been there for three years. Enjoyed the blessing of the fellowship. Went through the motions right along with everybody else. Felt some of the joy, experienced some of the sorrows right alongside everybody else. It is entirely possible to come to church your whole life, to experience the blessings of the fellowship of the church, but not to belong to Jesus Christ. And that leads to a tragic end. 
One of the worst things that could happen this morning is that believers go out doubting their salvation. That's not what we're talking about. What happened to Judas was not a random event that caught him unexpectedly. Oh no, I thought I was a believer. What happened to Judas was a process that had been going on in his heart for a long time, and he confirmed himself in that unbelief and sin and passed away out of Jesus' presence. Paul tells the church at Corinth, examine yourself. That's the very best possible thing that could happen this morning. For each one of us to take a moment to examine ourselves. Am I of the faith? That's the question that Paul asks. Is there hidden sin in which I persist that is actually Lord of my life? instead of Jesus being Lord of my life? Is there persistent unbelief? We're not talking about the nagging unbelief or doubt, excuse me. We're not talking about the nagging doubt that every one of us, including myself, experiences at times. We're talking about the one who doesn't take that doubt to the feet of Jesus and cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We're talking about the one who persists in unbelief while going through the outer motions because that's what's more comfortable. We might be talking about open hypocrisy, but we're certainly talking about a lack of love. These are the questions that we must ask ourselves. I truly believe that for the great majority of us, when we ask those questions, what we hear from Jesus is, I know my own. And the response our hearts cry is to hear the voice of our shepherd and to run to him. I truly believe that for the great majority of us, Jesus says, I am for you and you are in me. But I fear and I pray for those who are not there yet. Jesus himself said to his hearers, put your trust in the light while there is still time. The decisive moment is now. Oh, may we cry out to our Savior. Lord Jesus, we've come this morning to worship you because you are worthy. And we recognize you as the great I am who became flesh and walked among us pouring out your love, constantly extending your mercy and grace and compassion, and then in that great love going to the cross in our place. Thank you. Thank you that you always think of your disciples.
There's not a single moment that we fall out of your mind. Whatever the difficulty or trial that we're facing, in all of your glory and power, you are here. You're with us, and you go with us all the way. Father, encourage us in our trials with that great, not just truth, but daily experience of the presence of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray for the work of your Holy Spirit in our midst through your word. Holy Spirit who convicts of the reality and the danger of sin. Holy Spirit who speaks to us of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and our lack of righteousness without Christ. Will you speak today? Will you warn us of judgment to come and save by the miracle of new life, forgiveness, hope, and a future for everyone who trusts in you? Amen.